I geek out about Harry Potter, Shiba Inus, and front-end development. I geek out about books, learning, and software development. I geek out about utensils that have a very specific purpose, like a grapefruit spoon, for example. Hi, and welcome to She Geeks Out, a podcast where we geek out about all the things. I'm Rachel. And I'm Felicia. Good morning. Good morning. We so. are not together. <laughs> okay, I swear I think we should like rename this podcast to like the weather podcast because <laughs> all I want to do is talk about the weather, which is so boring, but I just can't handle. I don't know what happened. I like turned a certain age and now I'm just the worst when it comes to the weather. Anyway, it's like 50 degrees and it's pouring rain and it's June 4th in Boston. Yes. In Boston. Not yeah. in Iceland. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. well. Good morning anyway, Rachel. <laughs> good morning to you. At least we get to work from home in PJs or sweats or whatever. So that's yeah. nice. That is nice. Yeah. Um, and for those of you who are either listening to this um, in bad weather or not, um, you get to have a treat in your ears because we're going to be talking, or we were, we did talk, oh God, I can't even get my tenses right, Monday morning in bad weather, this is what it does to me, we talked to Aubrey Blanche from Atlassian, yes. and we talked so much that we had to do a part two. So just know this is part one of part two, and, and maybe more, who knows, but mm-hmm. Aubrey is delightful, and we talked about a lot of stuff. <laughs> we did, we did. She was great. Um, this is a great episode to listen to if you are interested in the topics of diversity, equity, inclusion, and then TBD, well, TBA, I guess, is yes. belonging. <laughs> oh, no, you spoiled it. <laughs> I did. I spoiled it. It's fine. It's all good. Oh, well, it's all fine. You'll have to listen to part two to learn about belonging. That's right. That's right. So how, how was your weekend? My weekend was really good. So one thing that you and I have been talking about is trying to de-stress and de-plug a little bit. So I consciously tried to de-plug this weekend, even though I did do work because I had to, because I always have to. But I de-plugged for a bit and it was really nice. Um, I did some stuff around the house. I gardened. And by the way, (laughs) I learned that I'm not very good at gardening. I broke a hoe in my hands as I was hoeing some dirt. And then I was like, it's fine. I'm just really strong. And I threw away half of the hoe and I kept hoeing with the bottom half. But then what happened was I basically stabbed myself in the leg with the with the broken end of the hoe. And I have a huge gash on my leg now. And it was like bleeding everywhere. It was a disaster. <laughs> oh my God. This is what you get for trying to get off the computer. Literally. I was like, seriously, universe, thanks for nothing. <laughs> so I abandoned those dreams. But I have like a half hoed garden bed now. And That's I don't impressive. know what to do with it. Because I... I, I don't think I'm good at gardening. I don't know what to do with it. So we'll see what happens. But on a related note, I signed up for a composting service. Mm, is it bootstrap? 
No, it's something else. I don't remember their name. Bootstrap is a She Geeks Out partner. I know, but this one is um is in Somerville, and so it. They oh, were- I, th- I thought Bootstrap was too. Or they, they probably were- are. I don't know. I just signed up for them. It was a spur of the moment decision. I was at the farmers market. I could take the bucket right there, so I okay. did. I, I okay. So literally, I have a bucket from this unnamed group that I don't remember their name of. They didn't even ask me to pay. So like, I mean, I have to eventually, but I have a bucket that I've been putting my composting scraps in. Now the flip side is if they never call me up and I just keep this bucket, I don't know what to do with all the food scraps. But anyway, I'm excited about it. So wow, you're so in nature. This weekend was your nature weekend. Yeah, it was. And I basically spent all day Saturday reading um, a book, which was not related to work, which was really nice. That's nice. And then on Sunday, which was cooler, I went to um, the Somerville, East Somerville Main Street. They put on an event called Carnival. And Mm. they basically shut down a whole stretch of road in East Somerville. And it's a community event. And there's like all sorts of fun stuff like music and food and um, dancing and uh, performances and like a dunk tank and I ran into our friend Erica Jones from the yes. center there and this is the second year in the road that we've run into each other Aww. at the event and it was really fun that sounds so nice what a fun weekend what's a fun weekend minus stabbing myself yeah minus stabbing yourself. I literally was like oh god am I gonna get like septic poisoning now like I don't oh know um anyway oh so TBD on that, but how was your weekend <laughs> Not nearly as eventful. It was very chill, actually. Um, Just like did some yoga and went to a friend's party. She's moving to LA. Yeah, which is really interesting and and fun. And we talked about weather. Shock. (laughs) (laughs) So silly. And then, um, and I guess this is related to a little bit about what I'm geeking out about. I just feel like I've been a little bit not taking care of myself lately. So I've been trying to do a little bit more self-care as I see the the numbers on the scale creep up. And, you know, I've been like trying, I was thinking about doing intermittent fasting. And so I'm still sort of like looking into that. And then I don't, I certainly don't think that I've shared this with our listeners. I know that, I know that you know this, but um, I used to smoke for like most of this. Oh, maybe I did. <gasps> what? <laughs> no. I did. That was my reaction. <laughs> Continue, please. That's probably- I, was just, I was standing in for what I imagine our listeners are, how they're reacting. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. <gasps> for, those, the, for those few that know me. Um, yeah, for like 10 years in my 20s, I smoked pretty aggressively. <laughs> and, um, and I lived in Europe for a little while and that was like impossible to quit smoking because everyone was like, you just yeah. walked into restaurants and everywhere, just everyone smoked. So even if you quit smoking, didn't matter because you were inhaling all this secondhand smoke. Um, but I just sort of got sick of it and um, decided to do this thing called Alan Carr's Easy Way, which is only really known if you are into probably like trying to quit smoking or anything. Yeah, I don't know it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I did it. It's a book. It's like audio and they have um, workshops. And I was, I did my one baller move on this. It was like baller and weird. (laughs) I did, I I went for, I was living in Geneva, Switzerland and I um, went to London for the day. 
to do this how tray european of you exactly although with my easy jet which is like the budget <laughs> no, <is>. whatever <laughs> i'm just gonna jet to london for the day exactly it's totally what i did i like went in the morning and i did the workshop and i came back and um and i had no interest in smoking after really that. yeah it really worked i was oh, like so magical it really well it was really interesting like i was trying to think back and um it's it's worth like if for people who were listening who were interested in quitting smoking i just really appreciated it because it was not like you these are all the reasons why smoking is bad for you like these are all the health reasons why it was more it was actually more talking about how like it's all it's all about systems and like the system is rigged against you and if you start to pay attention to that and like there's a lot of like repetitive it's intentional it's almost like it's like a little bit like yeah it's a little bit like hypnosis like repeating some things over like and over again yeah exactly so um all that to say um, i started smoking again and quit again <laughs> yes. no it. they have a wonderful weekend for you this was not what happened <laughs> <laughs> no, but I was thinking about my drinking and, you know, I, they had, there's a book for stopping drinking and there's actually one specifically for women because it was kind of interesting because of the way they frame it as like women have a different relationship to drinking than men do. And I thought it was really interesting the way they couched it. And so I started reading that book this weekend. So who knows, maybe by the end of this book, I will not be a drinker either. So. Okay. <laughs> Well, it's so funny you mentioned that because um, I had been dating somebody recently who does not drink, as you know, and it's really, it's been really interesting because I've been thinking a lot about how drinking is so tied up with um, dating culture and talking with um, various like friends and my therapist about it where I've been thinking so much about how like today in today's world when you go on a date like nobody eats food it's just about getting a drink and then what ends up happening is you go on a date and you drink on an empty stomach and then if you like the person you drink more so but then you don't eat food and so what ends up happening is if it's a good date you end up getting wasted and then you make bad decisions and if it's a bad day you drink it's it just like it's all really bad and nobody like sober dating is a very interesting new thing for me <laughs> and my therapist keeps saying maybe you should be examining your relationship with alcohol and I'm like I'm not an alcoholic I'm just <laughs> a product of our society <laughs> I think you're right I think that there, it's just it's really interesting like last night we went to went over to some friends house to watch um Westworld and neither of them are big drinkers and Mark, Mark and I talked about it too and I was like I don't really want to drink tonight um, and Mark was like, well, I might like have a beer. And then they sort of asked, does anybody want a beer or wine? And we were like, nah, we're good. And then nobody drank, you know, which was really good because Westworld was really freaking complicated. <laughs> like I need all my mental facilities. It's <laughs> like, what is happening? But, but you're so right. And it's like part of what the book was talking about is just like, you know, it's interesting that we are in a place where so many of us think that you know we equate drinking with happiness yeah and it's like and stress relief and it's like there's all this research and whatever but like just how you feel like you know when you wake up the next day do you feel good do you feel happy do you feel you know I actually realized recently that um any day where I feel more anxious I've likely had drinks the night before 
Really? Interesting. Yeah. And I'm not like a big drinker. I like my jam is like two glasses of wine. That makes me really happy. But like, I'm like, does it really make me happy? So now I'm like questioning. <laughs> well, two glasses of wine make me very happy, but that's because that's like my limit. So that's yeah. like me. <laughs> yeah, well, that's my limit too. Because if I have three, I'm like, a lunatic. So <laughs> I mean, I've seen you at three. <laughs> yeah, it's not pretty. <laughs> and I don't want to build up a tolerance to be able to have three either. So well, you know what? When I was in business school, and again, so going back to this idea of society and culture and drinking is like, so in business school, it's very much built around drinking. And so they basically give you free alcohol at a lot of stuff mm-hmm. and everyone goes out for thirsty Thursdays mm-hmm. and like everything is around drinking. And, um, and so I built up a huge tolerance in business school and could drink like a fish and I'm a small person. So, you know, and I, I weighed more in business school. So I, I definitely could handle more at that point too. But like I was drinking a lot. And then when I, um, when I left school and I had some health issues and I wasn't able to drink for like six months, my tolerance went down so low that I could inhale someone else's like glass of whatever and <laughs> feel high because I was like, Ooh, the fumes. <laughs> what were these people drinking? <laughs> oh, wow. I feel, I feel tipsy just from being around these people. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. It was kind of fun, but yeah. <laughs> it was also the- better in my wallet, but <laughs> yeah, no, seriously. Um, and yeah. So anyway, so that's what I've been geeking out about. I think this Aww. weekend. So we'll We'll see. We'll see what happens. It'll be interesting too. Cause I know with our events too, is like, you know, it's, it's very much around like beer and wine and we're more intentional about making sure that there's non-alcoholic beverages. Ideally it'd be more than water. And a lot of our sponsors are really great about that. And they include yummy non-alcoholic seltzers, which is really good. But anyway, it's interesting. Yeah. No, that's cool. Um, I'm geeking out about, well, I guess it's kind of related, but um, I am also dealing with just trying to feel fitter. And um, so I ran a half marathon last weekend, which we did not talk about because we recorded our intro before. Oh my God, that's right. I was like, we talked about that, but you're totally right. We talked about it in person, so it doesn't count for the podcast (laughs) world. But but I ran my half marathon. I achieved my goal, which was my New Year's resolution, and I survived. And I was dead for a couple days, and now I'm back in the living, and I am able to walk without hurting and sit down without being in pain, which is amazing. And so now I'm going back to the gym, and it's been really interesting because for a couple, or basically for I guess like five months, I've only been running, and. So now I'm like, oh, wow, I can do other cardio besides running. It's amazing. <laughs> so I rode over the weekend and it was really exciting. <laughs> Just nice. I was like, an exercise that is not involved running, which I hate doing so much. <laughs> You're never running again, right? I literally texted everyone and I was like, I'm never running again. <laughs> My trainer was like, we'll see. And I was like, no, I mean it. Never running ever. Ever. <laughs> Uh, all right listen before we take up any more time yes let's get to the actual point of this podcast yes I'm glad you're alive to Aubrey yes Yes. I'm glad I'm alive too I'm glad that we had great weekends and I'm really glad that we get to hear from an amazing woman in like two minutes me too 30 seconds 30 seconds and go well hello Felicia hi Rachel hi Aubrey 
Hey, so excited to be here. Yay, we are so excited too. I feel like this has been such a long time coming too. So it's like, we're doing it. For me, it's been well, years. I feel like we played internet tag forever <laughs> to make it happen, but I also kind of love that it came through this crazy kind of random connection. Yeah, well, let's, let's talk about that. Yeah. And then we have a lot of other stuff to talk about so too. So many things. But um, actually, maybe the connection will be listening to this podcast. Who really knows? <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, it was so funny when I got sort of the email from from like, so I would say my undergrad advisor, but also just like my mentor and like the person who taught me what feminism was so, <laughs> really important. Um, also like taught me how my brain worked and like how to think about systems and all of that. So yeah, very interesting that like everything sort of comes full circle. Yes, definitely. So who is this person? Um, so John Caberly and um, <laughs> I dated John last year. <laughs> randomly and he kept talking about this former student of his who was amazing and he was like you should know her she and you work in the same space and you would love her and I need to connect to you and then he like never did and never did and never did and I kept being like hey um remember how you told me you're going to connect me with Aubrey like hey and so then finally like a year later he was like I'm going to connect you and then he emailed us and then it sort of dragged on and I was like oh she's just being nice and she's never going to get back to me and then now it happened we're here <laughs> my connection is um like basically anything that John asked me to do, I'd be like, sure, I'll get on a plane. Like, where do you need me to go? <laughs> um, because I was this undergrad at Northwestern and I had decided that I wanted to study mercenaries and I wanted to understand like why people used mercenaries in warfare and just kind of started walking around the political science department, not even a department that I was in, like being like, I want to write a thesis on this. Who's going to help me? <laughs> and um, one of the professors was like, you should go meet John Caverly. And I was like, okay, I don't know who this is. And I like walked into his office and just started telling him these things. And for some reason, he just totally took me seriously. And I was like, sure, I'll advise you. And in the back of my head, I'm like, he must just think I'm really weird and need a lot of help. Um, but no, he, he like taught me, like, I mean, literally like feminist IR theory and, and things like that. But he really just made me understand that the way that I thought about the world was an actual methodology. And then like taught me how to be a social scientist, mm. um, yeah. which, you know, and also like obviously helped me get into like a PhD program that I then dropped out of, which is <laughs> really <laughs> smart. Thanks, thanks but no thanks. <laughs> uh, but like that was so formative to me, I think in terms of what I'm doing and why I have such understanding both of like the way frankly that white men can like share their privilege and their advantage mm -hmm. but also probably the clearest example for me of someone who is a mentor and truly a sponsor um and who just believed that I could do something and I never felt like it was because I was like the fact that I was a female student or like a queer woman or like a woman of color like didn't really matter he was just like I think you can do this and I'm going to teach you how to do it and I'm going to help you go to the things you want to do and and so that for me was formative because I recognized that not everyone has those types of people um so I'm both very grateful for it but I also take a lot of responsibility for trying to create those things for other people because wow. at the end of the day, right? Like your advantages aren't as fun if you don't show them. That's, I love that. That's I love that. Great, I'm gonna write, write that down. down right now. Just writing it down. So yeah, John, now you know all of this. Great. Now <laughs> <laughs> 
This well, is, he, he told me that he listens sometimes to our podcast, but I don't think he actually does, but he's definitely going oh, to email him and be like, you have to listen to this now because I'm gushing. <laughs> I know. <laughs> He'll be thrilled about like, but yeah, I did not realize that that was the, like, I didn't realize it's so crazy to me that you dated this person and then he <laughs> turns out to be this super amazing <laughs> ally. Like, well, insane. you know, I mean, I don't, I, I date a lot of terrible people, but he's not one of them. <laughs> no, I usually only hear the terrible stories. Okay. Um, anyway, but we haven't even said what you actually oh my do gosh. yet. And it's just, just, just for it. us, we're like, of course, but um, our listeners may not know, yeah. but he, your actual title right now is Global Head of Diversity and Inclusion at Atlassian, which as you mentioned, you started off in the social sciences field with mercenaries, which I did not know. That Bonkers. Way, hilarious and crazy. Now you're in diversity and inclusion and you head up DNI at one of the largest tech companies that's, in the world. That's why it's global. It's global. global. And at last end, at least for us, like it's the pinnacle of like best practices and cutting edge research and sharing best practices in this area. So how what happened in between? How? <laughs> Walk us through what happened there. <laughs> I mean, I, so I'm like in my head an engineer. Um, I just didn't know that. And I think, you know, John saw a piece of that and was like, here, here are all the things you're looking for that you don't know exist. Um, and really influenced me to go get a PhD again, because I was really interested in this problem of, um, like there's a severe increase in uh, the use of private military contractors in international war over the last sort of 15, 20 years, but also that you see an increase in collateral damage, AKA innocent civilians being killed. Right. Um, and I was interested in the way that intersected with the fact that we're using counterinsurgency to fight terrorism in a lot of the wars in the US. So all of that seemed really broken and inefficient to me and not good. And like all I, I think, at the end of the day, like, I really just care about, like, fairness and people hugging each other Aww. consensually. And, um, consensually. <laughs> Excellent and addition. It's important, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but, but so for me, it was, like, that's a huge problem that has, like, a life and death implications. So I should go figure out why things are broken because if you know why they're broken, you can fix them. Um, and so the way that that made sense to me was to go get a PhD um, where I sort of rounded out what I think of as my toolkit And I think that that's still something that I do. Like I'm using the exact same methodologies in ways that I analyze systems today in my job. It's just applied to a different subject matter. Mm -hmm. You know, I was in my PhD and I loved, you know, my program, but I realized that I was too far away from the impact of the research and what I was doing. And so it just wasn't the right path. And so I ended up leaving, um, leaving Stanford and, I kind of landed in the tech industry because it was around and I didn't know what to do. So I just like applied for 150 jobs and my God, (laughs) you're like, yeah, it sounds great. I got like three callbacks. Like it's not that impressive. (laughs) I had no skills. Um, But then I got to tech and, and the thing that really hit me, I was really in like the company that I worked for was called Palantir Technologies. And I was really inspired by the fact that they really go after hard problems, right? They care about stopping terrorism and improving well-being and health outcomes. And and so I was very inspired by that. But when I got there, it's like, oh, I'm a queer Latina woman. Where the hell are all my friends? Mm-hmm. And what I learned is I started asking questions of the industry, right? Because this isn't, there. you know, there's nothing about this that's specific to one company. People are like, oh, it's a meritocracy. And I was like, well, mathematically speaking, if you have this much homogeneity, you must have really low standards. Mm. 
right? Like, like that's just math. It's not like a social justice argument. It just doesn't make sense. Yeah. Um, right. Because we know that like capability is distributed across, you know, communities. So like, it's weird that you're having these selection effects again, researcher. And, and I realized that the same types of skills that, that I used to think about intervening in these sort of large scale international systems are the exact same things that you could take to this problem. It was, I started to read about DNI and about bias and all these things. Again, I'm good at making myself an expert. Like that's what PhD school teaches you how to do. <laughs> and, and so I honestly just had amazing support from the company I was at to begin running experiments, like internally to identify whether there were inefficiencies in the system. And I got support for that, and they kind of moved me into a DNI role to do that full time. Um, and then Atlassian called, and I honestly, so the funny story, I'm sure they'll love that I say this on recording. <laughs> and the email, you know, the little message from the recruiter, and I was like, oh yeah, I'll, I've never heard of this company, but like I'll, I'll talk to them. Um, and then I realized that I used like five of their products every day. <laughs> I was like, oh, I love your product. You're like, your branding needs a little work, by the way. <laughs> uh, no, that's great. I mean, that's exactly no, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> but throughout the interview process, you know, they were really open about the fact that this was something that was really, really important to the founders and to the executive team, but that they didn't have anything formal built out. So there was, it was a new role. They were looking to build a global function. Um, you know, they were like, we're not perfect, but we really want to get better. Uh, we don't know how to go about doing this. And I kind of came in and said, well, I have a methodology. If you're comfortable with it, I'd love to work with you. You know, and I kind of interviewed them and I was so struck during the interview process by just like what good human beings it seems like everyone I talked to was just like so authentic and real and honest and clearly invested in the success of, um, of the people. And especially I think the thing that really struck me um, was our, our chief legal officer who's still here during our interview, you know, he, he kind of asked me a question. He's like, so what's like the business case? Like, why should we invest in this business? And I was explaining, he's like, I'm going to stop you. I believe that you know that that's fine. You passed, but I want to be really clear with you. Like we care about this because it's the right thing to do. And we do the right thing by our people. Wow. And I was just like one to like have anyone say that during an interview, but also for it to be the head of legal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, seriously. Not like the CPO or anybody. My dad is an attorney. Um, so that just made such an impression on me. So when they actually gave me the job offer, I just kind of died. Anyway. Oh. Um, so I, was like, I don't want to tell you how much I want the job. I'm supposed to win. <laughs> um, and so I've been here about three years now, and my job is sort of weird. I, I joke and I say it's my job to make intersectional feminism profitable. <laughs> but. But really, what I focus on all day is across the whole sort of talent life cycle, across our branding, across sort of everything we do as a business, think about ways that we can re remove barriers to equitable experience, whether that's things like auditing our processes or developing community engagement initiatives internally or with our partners. Um, but really, I've taken, um, which I think is effective, is a really, really data and research informed approach. And again, I didn't have like any formal experience. I had like five months of formal experience in DNI when they hired me to build the whole function, which I still like. I'm like someone was drunk and sent an offer letter and worked for a business to like oh, that. <laughs> really good for me. So, uh, like, I, we, and we've tried to take an approach that was really different because 
the field of DNI, I think there's some amazing people that have been in it, right? It's such an important thing that you've seen happen in corporate America. But what we're really starting to see just in the last few years, and especially in tech, is people sort of adopting that agile, iterative, test and learn research and measurement based approach to these things. And I think that's really important because we're talking about unsolved problems. Like we have to generate new knowledge. We can't just implement best practices that haven't been validated to work. Mm. That's a, that's a performative exercise, not actually pushing for structural change. And so I've been really lucky that Atlassian has sort of these you know, two things that they let me do, which is one, they trust that the science thing is right, which I think helps that it's an engineering company. So they're like, yeah, you want to use data and like science, like we know what those things are. (laughs) And I'm like, awesome, you can apply them to this. (laughs) And then the other thing is we've been really proactive and this has been important to me is we try really, really hard not to paint the picture that we're like a magical utopia, but rather that we are sincerely and critically invested in constantly making progress and learning more about these problems and the solutions. And that because we're very lucky to be, you know, a public company and things like that, that we also know that sharing those practices with the rest of the industry is really important, right? Because at the end of the day, like even if Atlassian becomes a perfectly balanced organization all the way up and down the chain, you know, across many dimensions of diversity, if we haven't actually solved the industry level problem, we haven't done much. Mm -hmm. And so for us, it's, you know, doing research, things like our state of diversity report, because when I looked out and I said, there's actually, I can't find any sentiment data about what the average tech worker thinks, what their awareness level is, what their understanding is. And, you know, my team was like, well, we, we can do that. And when we got the data back, you know, I was using it for sort of my own internal benchmarking to kind of compare where we were. Um, And I was like, wait, but why would we keep this? Like, this is valuable for other DNI professionals, for other leaders in the field. Like, let's just release it. And people were like, this was so valuable and informed my work last year. So we were like, okay, well, we should do it again because there's value in it. Um, And so we've tried to do that. It's like, hey, here's things that we've tried that worked. By the way, here's the things we tried that didn't. Don't do those. Or tell us how you did. Um, because I think, and we're lucky again, we're all about collaboration. Um, like as a company, we're predicated on that. And our mission is to unleash the potential in every team. And we know that the best, most high performing, most effective, innovative, happy, creative teams are both diverse in many senses and also inclusive, right? So for us, we think of it as getting this right internally is simply a non-negotiable for us being able to deliver on any value that we've promised our customers. And hopefully we can help them get it right too along the way. So we're not perfect, but we're trying really hard to say that we're going to raise our hand and kind of take the captain seat on it. Mm. Um, Damn, Aubrey. <laughs> that is all amazing. And I say that like I use the I word, which is not true. I've got right like hundreds of people around the world who are all doing things that are like helping push this forward. Like it's not about me. It's about the team. I'm just the one. I'm like the squeaky wheel. Yeah. <laughs> um, that That is so impressive. I have like five questions, but um, one thing that okay, I'm, I have one question. It's not, not part of the initial. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. We, when you were talking about, you know, the fact that you're a scientist and you're doing this work. So um, James Damore popped in my brain um, as, as you were talking. And for those who are listening, who don't know James Damore, he was the, the Google engineer that wrote a memo that tried to use science 
to explain how women are biologically inferior uh, to be uh, engineers to compared to men, but they have other wonderful qualities that make them great, but maybe not as engineers. Um, and so I'm curious, like, have you come across, I have like five questions just about that, but have you come across any sort of similar sort of pushback at all at Atlassian? And my second follow-up question before I forget it, which I can re-ask later is like, what do you think of Google's response to the way they handled that situation? Yeah, well, I think, so from what I've seen, like, and this is not even just specific to Atlassian, is that so much of the tech industry has created these myths that are, again, anti-empirical. Um, and it's a little bit of a paradox, right? So, like, there's this myth of meritocracy in the tech industry. It's like, oh, oh, this outcome must be driven by, like, a quality of opportunity. Or, like, you know, if your code works, like, we'll judge you good enough. And the fact is there's just shit tons of research that show that that's absolutely not true. And so in, in regards to the Demore memo, um, the thing that like really struck me is nothing about those arguments actually matter. Um, right. Like we can debate the points and, and I would say that a lot of the research was misinterpreted and even a lot of the researchers have come out and said that, you know, the conclusions that were drawn were not appropriate given, given the specific study. But what is known is that there is an unknown effect of nurture versus nature on our preferences, for example, right. It's a really endogenous problem. Mm. It's a John Caverly word I learned. Endogenous. <laughs> <laughs> um, but right. So we can't actually decouple specifically, um, what, what the impact of those things are, but it doesn't matter because what we do know and what there is absolute scientific certainty about is that bias, harassment, and discrimination has disproportionately driven underrepresented people out of tech. The KPOR, um, tech leavers study is an amazing example and an incredibly rigorous. So Frida and, and, um, you know, and, and Allison are amazing researchers on this. So we know that those things are true. And so debating whether there is a biological difference is simply irrelevant because we know that those real issues, one, can be solved, and two, are affecting these outcomes. And so I think of it as my job to deal with that. Um, like, like, that's it. And in terms of, like, how a company dealt with it, I think that it's something I can't really comment on mostly because especially when you're talking about interpersonal issues or issues with DNI, like everything is so context dependent and specific mm -hmm. that, um, you know, I just can't make a judgment because I wasn't there. Um, but on a broader level, and I think this is a really important point is that for advocates or for folks who are sort of pushing for DNI, there is a, there is a tendency or a temptation because it's really emotionally satisfying to sort of point fingers and say, oh, look what they did, look how they're bad, whoever they is. And we sort of vilify and archetype those companies. But the fact is, this is a structural industry level problem. And so our response should not be, this X company is horrible, or what is this? It should be, wow, what shades or versions of that could exist in my sphere of influence? And how can I make sure it doesn't happen where I'm around, right? If yeah. we all take that stance to it, because the fact is, just because you know about a problem doesn't mean it's the only one that exists. Um, and so it's really easy to feel morally superior when you're not sort of in the middle of one of those situations, but that's not actually helpful to creating true system level change. Mm, no, exactly. And it's so interesting too, because on that note, so we're recording this at the end of April and what has just come out 
is the whole um, response around Starbucks where they had the incident in Philadelphia where the cops had come and taken the two black men who were waiting. And so Starbucks just announced that they're rolling out mandatory unconscious bias training for I think it's like a whole day or a half a day for every single location. And there's been a lot of chatter around this, around whether this is the right approach or whether this will work or be effective. And someone just asked me about that this morning and I said to this person, well, you know, I'm really interested to see what the outcome is because honestly, like I, I don't know, but at least they're doing something and whether it's good or bad, you have to start somewhere. And I have personal thoughts about what they're doing, but at the same time, like, you know, there are probably other underlying problems beyond this one specific incident and whether or not this particular day of training will address that. I don't know. We'll have to see. I mean, I think, I think what it comes down to is we have to understand, right? There's this idea of um, like people have like a work life and a home life or like we have a work world and like uh, outside world. And the fact is that's not true, right? These systems are porous, like they interact and, and affect each other. So if we pretend like, you know, sexism and racism like don't exist, then what we don't do is create space to see it in our sphere of influence, whatever that is, whether it's sort of at your job, you know, whatever type of job it is. And so I think one of the things that's important is you have to create space in your culture for people to be real and to be authentic people. And sometimes, sometimes that means that they're hurting and they're experiencing trauma, but you can't fix a problem that you deny exists. And, and from like, you know, just the, the higher, higher order, you know, issue around unconscious bias training, the thing is, you know, it's become really trendy. Um, and, and I, and I have a, a kind of a, I'm like the middle way person. I'm always sitting in the middle of things, um, which is that there's been a lot of research that unconscious bias training is either ineffective or can backfire. Um, and there's a couple of things that are really important about that research that I want to call out, which is one, that study, um, some of the studies around that didn't actually control for what the content of that training was. So there's a lot of heterogeneity in the sample, um, such that I wouldn't be comfortable making inferences. Uh, but what um, I believe Joel Emerson uh, has a great uh, response to this, which I think everyone should read, basically shows that when you provide unconscious bias training um, and it, you have specific object objectives and those objectives are not make people unbiased, um, it can be effective for specific things. So mm. what you need to do is make sure that you don't hammer home everyone has bias. What you need to, that's true, but what you need to hammer home is that we can take action mm -hmm. to mitigate it. Mm -hmm. You can give people a common language to safely discuss the gaps in their own objectivity and help them understand why you might be making specific process changes. So what I say is unconscious bias training can be effective. It needs to be designed understanding the pedagogical principles that make it effective, scoped to achieve a limited set of goals, and be accompanied by a more thoughtful, comprehensive, unconscious bias mitigation program across the entire employee life cycle. So it's not a no, it's a yes and mm -hmm. um, yeah. around that. So, and, and again, I, I wanna say like, that's not something that you can like snap your fingers and implement in two months at a company, no matter what the company is, maybe if your company is five people. Um, but, but so it's really about, is this step one? And I think that it's just more productive to both hold the fact that you're like, we're not at the end point, we're not at the end of inclusion, this isn't right. But we also can't allow a step forward to become the enemy of that outcome that we all agree on getting to. Because again, we're trying to push for change. And if we really want to see that in a practical sense, we have to accept the step forward and say, 
here's your cookie and now what's your next step, right? Yeah. It's yeah. always both. Um, and so I, like, I'm, I'm optimistic because I see more, more corporates um, working on things. And I think the biggest thing is both great you're doing, you know, you're taking this step, whatever company you are, whatever step that is, what is your next step? And how are you keeping yourself accountable for kind of making progress like a ratchet, right? Where you're always moving up a little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's what we talk about. It's like, we're not going to get to inclusion this year, but our goal is to continuously raise the standards at Atlassian, like every week, every quarter, every year. And eventually we'll get somewhere that's a lot better. And we probably won't even notice we're doing it along the way. Right. Cause each step feels small, but then you look at mm -hmm. like, Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> look where we are now. Yeah. <laughs> oh my yeah. God. Like, like we talk a lot about moving the needle and yeah. small, small minor shifts over yes. time will end up in a larger shift, but it does take time and it does take the realization that you're not going to just check off a box and then become perfect because that's not how it works. Yeah. So. Well said. Okay. I want to talk about the survey. Yes. Yeah. You just came out with the, with the 2018 state. We love that survey. We were actually so inspired. We did, we did a little, we, we actually are going to be announcing our, we did a little Boston tech survey just to get a sense of how Boston tech is oh, doing. Awesome. So. Oh my goodness. Please send it over. I am so excited to see. It's going to come out really soon. Yes. Hopefully very soon. Um, and we've already <laughs> learned a lot. So next time we do it, we'll, be a little <laughs> yeah, we'll learn how to do a better yeah, survey. I was, I was uh, really interested to see the results, especially now that we have longitudinal data, sort of comparing 2017 yes. to 2018. Um, and it, it was funny because I felt like in a lot of ways, you know, I, I kind of said, what is like the theme? What is the big takeaway? And I was like, diversity fatigue is real. Yeah. Yeah. So talk, about, so talk that. about that. So you talk about how diversity fatigue is a real thing. And so tell us a little bit more about what that means, how we can maybe push back against that fatigue and perhaps overcome it. Yeah, I think so. There's like fatigue, and I mean that in a lot of different ways. So it's like a diverse concept. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, no, but but so for advocates, right? So for folks who are really bought into this mission and who are doing amazing work, you know, I would say that you know that the tech diversity movement in particular got really reinvigorated, you know, in 2013, and we haven't seen much structural change, right? There's pockets of it where we're seeing things change, but we're not seeing those sort of overall paradigm shift. And it's really exhausting to put this much both intellectual and usually deeply emotional personal effort into these yeah. things and to not see it, right? Like that is just exhausting to run up a mountain and realize you haven't gone very far. Um, and then I think on the other side for the folks who maybe lack education or awareness on the specifics of the issues, um, they are also like, I'm so sick of hearing about diversity, but I'm like, well, if you would have taken action to do something, we would stop talking about it. <laughs> so... And then I think there's a really interesting thing that the survey sort of showed um, that happened over the last year, which is what you saw in 2017 was that folks really expressed hope that companies would be taking the lead. So they thought it was companies and individuals and not really the government that was going to be making moves on this. And what you're seeing now is that that faith in companies has really fallen. So people think that it might take the, the judicial system to actually mm -hmm. make changes. And I think the reason for that is because there were a lot of people who were well-intentioned but truly didn't understand the scale and depth of the problem. Mm -hmm. And what you see with you know, the Me Too movement and a lot of other big events sort of in tech specifically um, is that all of a sudden those people who were unaware of the issues, um, like they're like, oh shit, 
Like, I thought this was like a few people with complaints and what this is is an actually terrifying, overwhelming, complex issue that's not mm -hmm. just about sexism or sexual harassment, but all these other subtle things that I wasn't even aware of on the radar. And when it, you're the average person who's just learned this, it like you're especially, I think, if you're a good, well-intentioned person who doesn't want those things to exist, it is so overwhelming that you just freeze, right? And you're like, I can't do anything. And so all of that together is contributing to this lack of progress. And something, and sort of one of the solutions we proposed, which is how, we, like, at Atlassian, are like, oh, how should we do it? Like, just throw a team on it, right? Like, <laughs> is... We've tried, I've tried really, really hard not to focus on the corporate level numbers, not to focus on things like empower women. Like, what does that mean? Like instead, like give someone a specific tactical, tactical mm. strategy to improve the experience of people on their team. Mm. So, um, it's like, Oh, like empower women, make sure women's ideas are heard. Okay. Well, what does that mean? Well, right. implement a no interruptions rule in your meeting because women and marginal, other marginalized people and people with combinations of those identities are more likely to be interrupted, have their ideas co-opted in meetings. Just put in a no interruptions rule. Right. And it gets an equity of experience, but what it does is it creates a level playing field because everyone's going to benefit, but those folks who were the most affected by that issue are going to benefit the most. So you end up putting everyone on a playing field. And so we've tried really to embed those principles. like. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, I'll work on things like manager training. It's like, we don't call it inclusive management. We call it management. Yeah. Yes. Yep. <laughs> because, like, inclusion is not a tack on. Like, it, it's just, like, a way of doing things. Yeah. And what I found is that when you just give people specific instructions and you're, like, you appeal to their best selves, you say, hey, I believe you can do this. I totally get that you're overwhelmed and freaking out and you're going to say the wrong words and we're going to create some space for you to fuck up. And then we're going to gently correct you and ask you to do better. Um, you know, for things that are well-intentioned, like, that's really powerful. Like, mm -hmm. some of the strongest allies we now have at Atlassian are people who are like, you, diversity lady, I'm very skeptical of you. <laughs> um, but, but they took the time to listen, right? That, which is a really brave thing to do. And I answered their questions that maybe I've answered 500,000 times, but they haven't had answered for them in a compassionate way mm. and, and sort of creating space for them in the conversation. They're like, Oh, I can participate and I can try and I can try to be an ally in this way. And maybe it's a baby step, but that baby step turns into, you know, running a marathon. And so I think we need to be thoughtful about that, that there are certainly, I don't want to say that there are not people who are just ill-intentioned and like actively the problem, like those people do exist. But I think the majority is, is folks who lack awareness, lack lived experience to understand the problems we're talking about. And then also, as professionals, we need to be thoughtful to bring them into the conversation and empower them to do something and not necessarily give them solve structural oppression as step one. Yeah. Just be the best version of yourself today. I think that is so great to hear. We talk a lot about shame. Um, and so much of this stuff is, um, it's so counterproductive, um, and, and being able to create a welcoming space for people that, um, really, just like you said, are just not informed and are, you know, well-intentioned. And, and I think it's, um, I think it's a really important, um, like distinction. So right, one of the things that's really critical to like making progress in any type of movement is thoughtful critique. Mm -hmm. Right. Like we have to critique things that are not perfect. But I think sometimes when we get frustrated, that becomes our default mode. And, and that's not always strategically effective. 
right? So certain things like public accountability and pressure and critique actually work to change, but individuals, for the most part, that's not true. So uh, like I'm all the way on the, you know, Kim Scott radical candor train. And and what I found is that, um, you know, what I've sort of been calling call out culture, um, I think of it as like call in culture, right? If we can create that. So it's, it's not not holding people accountable, right? Like if you fuck up, if you use the wrong person's pronouns or you're using language that's actually very exclusive, it's not that you don't get corrected for that. You absolutely should be. But um, I'm a big fan of the assume positive intent, accept responsibility for impact. Right. And so like that is the baseline assumption is like, hey, you did wrong. It's okay. You get to fail. But I'm now going to educate you, and now my standard for you has been raised because you have been educated, and I don't expect you to make that mistake again. And, and so I think that we, as sort of a DNI community, a set of advocates trying to push for more equity, for more balance in tech or in the broader business community, need to understand that, right, these are psychological principles that are known. Um, if you're trying to get someone to change and you invoke shame, which is, I am a mistake, as opposed to guilt, which is, I made a mistake, mm-hmm. um, they're going to lock up they're going to dig in their heels, even if they actually probably want to help out. And I think that's something to hold is I like, I love my, my perfect philosophy, but I also recognize that I'm dealing with real humans. And so I have to deal with the constraints of that, which is humans react in certain ways. And the more we can, as advocates, it's certainly my actual job, act as a compassionate educator, the more I'm actually going to get at the change. But it requires this really, really hard thing, um, which is you have to opt into the emotional labor of doing it, right? I'm a queer woman of color. I actually get paid for my emotional labor on that. So I don't want to, I don't want to insinuate that I think people are morally obligated to do that emotional labor if they don't feel that they can. But it's, I also have to balance that with the practical perspective of it is those individual moments and stories that create change in belief and change in behavior for people. Um, and so we just have to balance those two really hard truths that no one is morally obligated to educate about their life experience, but without folks who are willing to share when they can, we're not actually going to change the hearts and minds that are eventually going to create the corporate industry, you know, global population level change. So Tough to, you're I like, know. it's, it's so hard. Yeah. You nailed it. <laughs> it, it on the, on the money, because it's funny for some of the training that we do, we actually have an activity, which is called who is Felicia. And my joke when I always do it is I'm like, in case you forgot, I'm Felicia. And then we go into the activity, which is basically like, I use my own personal life experience you know, to kind of help illustrate some of these concepts that we talk about. But it is so hard, right? Because you have this push and pull where you want to use yourself, but then that use of self becomes, it can become very emotionally draining. And especially when you're putting your whole self out there. And then if someone comes back to you and you're like, I still don't like it and I don't like you. And it's like, okay. <laughs> I don't believe in this, but I will say as someone who's been witness to many of the workshops that, that Felicia has facilitated, um, you do it with a lot of compassion. I think that that is really the key to this. So just you agree. I just agree with 
everything you said. I have no, I have no points of contention with anything you said, Aubrey. This <laughs> is <laughs> like my favorite thing. Um, I should really stop saying this in public. But like, I, people on the podcast can't see me, no. but I'm like very white presenting and very femme presenting. So like, I'm like the secret minority. Um, <laughs> like I walk into the room and like, yes, I'm a woman. And that's, you know, I, I match up to sort of my gender presentation matches that. Um, but, you know, I walk into the room and it's like, just by having an experience with me being open about the fact that, you know, I'm a queer Latino woman, all of a sudden people are like, whoa, wait, uh, like, what? Uh, what? What? All of my labels broke in my head. <laughs> and, and so I, she would be good with that game. Right. Like yeah. um, I have a, a friend who's like, I'm going to make you a podcast called secret Mexican. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, but I think that's really interesting, right? And it also helps us. I think one of the things we've tried to do at Adassian, um, which is really informed by the fact that intersectionality is just my life. Um, so intersectionality for folks who are listening and don't know, um, really simply, it's just the concept that we all have layers. We all have a bunch of identities that we carry around at the same time. Um, and they overlapped and they, they affect each other. Um, and so it's like, I can't separate being a woman from the fact that I'm a Latina woman or that I'm mixed race. Like I, those things just go together for me. And so what we've tried to do at Atlassian is overcome the, what I call corporate white feminism, um, which basically is confusing diversity for meaning gender. Mm-hmm. Uh, because what tends to happen, and I think the reason people go that way is because they think, oh, it's a big group. We can make a big impact. But what the practical, what practical happens is that people end up building programs predominantly for straight, white, cisgender, economically advantaged women, um, and forgetting that they're sort of further marginalizing, one, further marginalizing folks who maybe are the minorities within that big group, but then also it creates an us versus them dynamic, right, where it's men versus women instead of we, we're all working together. And so what we've tried to do, especially in our sort of cultural transformation and dialogue, is like teach about the fact that intersectionality is a thing, that it's far past race and gender, that they're, you know, inherent in acquired diversity. So we talk about things like religion and yes. mental health, yes. <laughs> That's my, one of my favorites. I mean, and so we were the first company to release age statistics as part of our, um, like diversity thing. Part yeah. of it was, I was like, yes, a group I can advocate for. I'm not in. Um, <laughs> but, but also because, right, ageism is the elephant in the room in tech. Like, no, yeah, it's so true. Talking about. Um, I'm really excited. We've, um, we've in, in the last three years, we've increased our representation of folks over 40 at Adassian from, I think, around, like, by at least five percentage points. Well, listen, Aubrey, if this whole she geeks, if this whole she geeks thing, she geeks out thing doesn't work out, I'm over 40. So if you need to pump up your numbers, you just let me know. I'm happy to move to Sydney. Everyone listening. Atlassian.com slash careers. Seriously. Yeah. We're always hiring. You can tweet at me. I will tell you that I love my job and I like have the dream job and the best team in the whole wide world. So <laughs> It'll be better if you join. Yay. <laughs> oh, and speaking of that, I actually want to go back to Atlassian. So I'm glad that you mentioned that because yeah. we talked a little bit about uh, one of the values. Oh yeah. We did not get back to that. So, yeah, talking about values, uh, I can go on a couple of things with this. So at last scene, we talk about the fact that we're really values-led culture. And when I was interviewing, I was like, yeah, that's what everyone says. Sure, transparency, empathy. And then I started Googling, and they had values like uh, play as a team and don't fuck the customer. 
and <laughs> which I love. I know. In <laughs> in any way, by the way, that should be like it's a multi-layered large. value. <laughs> but I was so struck by it because they're not these sort of like when you hear that, like you feel what that means, right? There's real meaning there. And, you know, I heard during the process, they're like, oh, no, these are the things that we use to truly guide, like, our decision-making at the company. And I have been so completely struck by that uh, internally. Like, is the thing, the values are cited every day. There's thoughtful communication from our founders, from everyone about the fact that we're the guardians of these things and we have to be responsible with them and that they work in tension with each other. So, for example... Um, our sort of dedication to directness and transparency is open company, no bullshit. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is that you could take that value by itself and say, oh, well, I can just kind of be direct and be an asshole. But for us, we say, no, no, no. If you're ever using only one of the values, you're doing it wrong. It's mm-hmm. open company, no bullshit, but play as a team, right? So yes. be direct, but be kind. Yeah. And so it's not just the what, it's the how. And it's this, it's, I think there is such wisdom that our founders had early on. And these were codified, not right when we were founded, but actually basically uh, our team went out and did an exercise where they took leaders and they took sort of, you know, the, the rank and file Atlassians, if you will, and kind of asked the question, what are the qualities of the best Atlassians that we have? And when those groups came mm-hmm. back together, their lists were actually shockingly similar and those things actually became our values. Um, And one thing that we've done that's actually had a huge impact on, on the diversity or what I say, the balance um, of our teams, because I'll get into that later. I'm not going to war to get rid of the word diverse, but um, (laughs) it is, is that we actually realize, you know, like a lot of tech companies, we're talking about things like culture fit. And now what we actually look for and we developed a specific interview around is something um, called a values alignment interview. Mm-hmm. Um, and the interview is really focused on um, looking for the kinds of qualities that we think predict really successful people. So things like wanting to work in an open, transparent way, being willing to go the extra mile to help your teammate, right? Being really thoughtful and prioritizing impact on your customers. And we were really thoughtful to design it in a way that didn't assume you had a particular type of experience, you know? So if if we're talking to you about making trade-offs, you know, under different constraints, you could tell me a story about, you know, running a global P&L function for a multinational, or you could just be trying to get your three kids to soccer practice and dance and get dinner on the table, right? You can develop the skills in all of those ways. And so we really try to have that. So we know that everyone who comes in has our shared set of values, but that they add to the culture in new and unique ways. And it makes us, so our culture is always growing and changing. And the culture across our different teams or our different offices will always be a little bit different, but we all have this core set of values that are really the way that we work together. And, And I think having that so early built this culture that when I came in, even though there wasn't really, quote, formal diversity programs, the ether of the company was something that they said, you know, we have the, inf- we have the cultural infrastructure to support it. We just need to formalize it and sort of give it a little bit of a gas. Yeah. That's awesome. Oh my God. My neck hurts from <laughs> nodding so much. <laughs> so good, Aubrey. And I can't believe like I said, I'm really lucky. Like I love my job. So you clearly I'm do. Like I'm completely spoiled by the amazing people that I work with who make me sound like I'm, you know, good at things or that we've been really successful. But like, it's really hard for me to like actually communicate the amount of just like labor of love and thought and innovation that has like come through the culture and the company that 
frankly, I like didn't touch or had nothing to do with, or someone's like, Hey, we did this amazing thing. And I'm like, I didn't reach. I had nothing to do with it. Like really taking on sort of a life of its own and empowering people to say, just make your sphere of influence a little bit better. Um, and that's, and that's been, I, I think the most rewarding thing for me is like when you see that people start doing my job, I'm like, I'm becoming more useless. This Yay. <laughs> that's the goal, right? To make yourself, uh, get yourself out of a job. Yeah. Do you, yeah. is it, is it just, is it just you, you have a team? So, uh, it's an interesting question. So we have a little bit of a, a strange strategy. And again, I'm a very opinionated person, but one of the things that we've really tried to do is actually not hire like an army of diversity specialists. So my job is very intentionally, um, we think of my department as horizontal. So mm -hmm. I'm technically the only human at the company that has diversity in my job title. Um, but I'm not the only person who has diversity in my and inclusion in my job responsibilities. Aubrey, um, I'm going to stop you right there because you were very specific in saying that you are not the only human, which makes me think that there are robots that work with you. Sorry, I had no idea where this is going. I don't really know why. I think I'm just like such a <laughs> Oh my God. Now I have this um, amazing vision of humans and robots working side by side. Automation is coming for all of our jobs. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that's a whole other conversation. Empathy yet. Like that's our <laughs> empathy is like the human competitive advantage, right? Yes. That's right. That's <laughs> um, so we should be telling these people who don't want to to support <laughs> empathetic leadership. Everyone has empathetic potential. It just shows up in different ways. But <laughs> but yeah, like I'm it would it would be totally unfair to be like, oh yeah, Aubrey is behind all the diversity stuff. You know, like I think about uh, Atlassian's campus recruiting team who's brought in basically a balanced class since we started working together and like sure I sort of advised and helped out with the strategy there but like you can't give me credit for that that's that team our recruiting team has done an incredible job of finding amazing folks to join the team such that we're becoming more balanced over time um, you know uh, if, if you go look, our, our brand team has sort of overhauled our illustration style and shared sort of their entire creative process I didn't do that I think I gave them, I made a comment to one person two and a half years ago, and like they came up with what I think of as one of the best things in the industry on inclusive illustration style. So you can't give me credit for that work. Um, and so I think, yeah, that's the thing is like just to see people like having these innovative ideas and creating something that with, you know, what's available to them and knowing that they have the permission to do it and not just the permission, right? It's like, please go do this. And that comes a lot. Like I get so much support from our founders who are like, well, we don't want to step on your toes. Like we're trying to do the ally thing. Like you're the expert. What do you need from us? Like what right. does allyship look for us as leaders? And I think because I'm like, just be consistent and tell people that this is the outcome you want to go. So they feel comfortable, show up as real humans at work. And I think that's something that I'm really proud of is that our leaders do show up as people. They're not perfect, but they are trying. And and the fact that they do that, I think, is the most empowering thing for our folks is that, you know, even the folks at the top don't know everything, but they do their best uh, and they learn, you know, whenever their best wasn't the right thing. Yeah. Um, it's, we talk about that oh a lot too, with like leadership um, being, it's so important to have that buy-in from, from leadership and it's, it's not an easy thing to, to get. So that is definitely a plus in Alaska. And I'm, I'm recognizing the time, by the way. Yes. Because, like, seriously, I have this feeling that we could talk with you, like, I mean, all day. Do, like, eight podcasts, but I don't think... I mean, don't, don't challenge us. Yeah. Because we can make it happen. We can make it happen. <laughs> we could. 
We might. Well, no, we I'm might. Kidding. Well, maybe this is part one of, okay. of N. Part yeah. one of N. I like <laughs> part one of N. <laughs> How abstract can we do it? I work with a lot of computer scientists. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, so we have a couple other questions that we want to get yeah. to, but maybe we'll save those for yeah. part two. Yes. And we are going to switch gears a little bit. Yes. We have this list of standard, what we call fun questions, which we like to ask all of our guests. And so the first one, which we ask everybody, is what do you geek out about? Which is not something that you've already talked about. You can't say diversity, inclusion, or social studies. <laughs> or, I mean, maybe you could say mercenaries, but yeah. Actually. That's like my whole personality. No, <laughs> no you no. like something else. There's, there's gotta be something there's else. There's a television show. What else do you geek out about? Do you watch TV? <laughs> um, I really, really love, like, Grey's Anatomy and like other soapy like soap operas but also anytime I'm in a bad mood I want to watch a Marvel movie because yes. you know that the good guy is going to like win at the end and it's yes. just like really entertaining yes um agreed yeah so that's it like I I love I mean I'm like a super nerd and actually prefer to read like academic studies for fun but <laughs> like I also have incredibly like basic taste in in entertainment well, no judgment, no safe space, no shame, no definitely, and no guilt either. No shame, no. You sh yeah, good. You shouldn't. And I will tell you, we I watched an episode of For the People, the new Shonda Rhimes show. I haven't seen it yet. It's a little rough. <laughs> I well, so Rachel got me into rewatching, or I should say, watching because I never saw it to begin with. Allie McBeal, <laughs> which I feel was like the you predecessor to Grey's Anatomy. And but in a legal setting, I'm I'm very much relating to it, and it's okay, really I'm it's actually I'm gonna, I'm just gonna go I'm gonna hit the wayback machine and you just go watch you you actually have yeah. to because so so it's it it was out in like 1998 mm -hmm. and they a literally it was it was so long, it was 20 years ago they totally tackle the exact same issues around gender in the yep. workplace mm -hmm. that we are dealing with today. It's actually it's really fascinating. Fascinating. I never watched it to begin with, and I. I'm watching it now and I'm like, A, I relate so hard to her, which is a shame. But which is yeah, um, B, I'm like, wow, they're tackling like like they had a whole episode on using gendered pronouns for a trans woman and how you know the people yeah. in, in the law firm were just calling her she and then they talked about like it was just fascinating. Was whole, and yeah. I was like, wow, they were really cutting edge and who knew? Oh, I'm gonna have to go back because like the practice was like my favorite show when I was like There's a crossover episode. <laughs> wow, you got through a yeah. lot. Of Whoa. <laughs> oh, with Dylan God. McDermott. This is life altering. This conversation has now become like <laughs> Okay. Yay. Good. Okay. So well, that's just one of the fun Okay, okay. Have, so. Now now it's just one of many. <laughs> one of many. Uh, okay, so who or what inspires you? Oh God, there's so other many. than John. Uh, right. Uh, John <laughs> Easy. No, um, done. Also, <laughs> weird. I keep listing academics. Um, like, one of my advisors at grad school, actually, Justin Grimmer, like, he just literally looked at me one day. He's like, you know that you're, like, good at math, right? Uh, and, okay. and I was like, I am. And now I, like, tweeted him questions about statistics at work and whatever. And he really, like, he like actually made me believe it. Like my dad told me my whole life and then John told me I could do science. And then this advisor uh, like told me that I was really good at math. And like, I love math a lot. Like I get it. Um, my, my team is like, you're such a nerd. Like I'm the data nerd. All I want to talk about is data all the time. <laughs> um, so that like people who took time out to like, to believe in me really inspire me. But when I think about like people who I feel like I sort of live in their shadow, I think of, 
just women, um, you know, non-binary people who have showed incredible bravery. I think of people, you know, big acts, people like Susan Fowler who stepped out, yeah. Tracy Chow who asked a question that no one wanted to talk about. But even things like I have a friend named Adi who they, you know, are non-binary and so out and proud about it. And like just people who are brave enough to show up authentically and vulnerably, like anyone who's doing that, whether or not they have a fancy job title to me is so inspiring. And I kind of hope I'm like, you know, you've given me the, the incredible experience of being able to witness that. Like, I hope I can live up to it. Like, I hope I can earn like the vulnerability and like the, yeah. So that's kind of it. Like anyone that's doing things like that, whether or not, you know, it's big or public or whatever, I think about how, how do I live up to that example? Yeah. Um, so our next question is what are your core values? Oh, your um, core values, not Atlassians. Yeah. (laughs) I think, um, there are sort of two things that I value more than anything. Um, three, I'll say three things, which is intellectual rigor, like fairness and kindness. Um, like without question, I've always been this person looking back, like hindsight is 50, 50, but, um, my dad always thought I was kind of a weird kid, but he's like the most empowering guy. And, and, and he's like, oh, you know, the world's not fair. And I one day was just like, dad, what a fucking lazy thing to say. Um, and, and he was like, what? I was like, okay, so it's not fair, but that doesn't mean it has to be that way. And so um, I feel like if there's a phrase, and a friend said this to me recently, so I will give them credit. It's like, I think I just always had higher standards for the world than that. Mm. Um, and so I've been given so, so many advantages in my life. You know, I had a loving, supportive family. I had the opportunity to get a great education. You know, I'm a statistical anomaly given my demographics. And, and so for me, it's like, oh, I've been given so much opportunity. Like the only fair thing for me to do is like take responsibility and to share that. Mm. Um, it also feels good. Right? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. It feels good to do it, but it also results in a lot of good for other people. So yeah. I think that for me is like, I am so lucky to be able to get up every day and do something that completely aligns with like my values and my purpose in life. Right on. And I hope that you can like help other people do that. Right. Yeah. Oh my God. So good. And you have a uh, huge gratitude. That's really lovely. Um, so what is your favorite way to practice self care? This is great. I really just want to get in my bathtub and read a book. Nice. Yes. Well, actually, that's a great answer, which leads us to our next question, which is, what are you reading right now? Or what's your favorite book? Oh, what am I reading? Oh, my favorite book. That's so hard. Um, you can, <laughs> if, if, if you if you want to stalk me down on the internet, I have both a Goodreads account and a public Amazon list of all of the book recommendations I get. So you can Whoa, that's good to know. Okay, um, well, we will stalk away. <laughs> so last year, I read 52 books. I'm trying to read 75 this year. Oh, my gosh. I read a book about speed reading because I'm not a reader. Um, so I'm reading a book about attachment styles right now. I'm reading Rules for Radicals uh, by Saul Linsky, which is sort of practical social change. Um, I'm also reading I have so many books, uh, like three Brene Brown books. Um, uh, the New Minority, which is about sort of the changing uh, nature of of like the of whiteness in America mm-hmm. and how it intersects with economic uh, opportunity. Um, so like lots of those things. Yeah, those all sound great. So now we have more on our list. I have a question for you about that though. Um, the speed reading things that like legit work. Can you comprehend while speed reading? 
Um, yes, totally. I can. Okay. That's um, amazing. So, well, so there's like a technique to it. Like I didn't learn how to do it magically. Um, it's yeah. Okay. That's all. Yes. I know we're, we're short on time. Basically at time. But the good news is if we do part two, we will ask the rest of our questions. Yes. So I think on that note, we will wrap up. Okay. You already plugged careers at lassian.com slash careers and your Goodreads account. Anything else you want to plug? Uh, if you don't know what to do with your company, go read everything that Project Include yes. published. They're so good. Love it. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much, Aubrey. Yeah. And we will hopefully do a part two of N series. Yes. We we'll love that. <laughs> we'll find some time. Okay. Beautiful. Sounds great. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thanks to all our listeners for spending some time geeking out with us. If you enjoyed listening, please rate and review us on iTunes. Every review helps. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss the next interview. And tell all your friends. New episodes drop every Tuesday. (laughs) Check us out at She Geeks Out on all the things. And in case you're wondering what those things are, they are Twitter, Insta, FB, otherwise known as Facebook, LinkedIn, and our website, of course. Bye, Rachel. Bye, Felicia. Bye, Felicia.